Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I should like to draw our attention this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. So if you would turn there in your Bibles with me. Whether you do that physically or whether you do that electronically, either way you want to be able to lay your eyes on what we are talking about today. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, in a moment I will begin reading in verse 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, page 555 this morning is where you can find our text. And I am reminded uh, this week of an important truth, something that I hold very dear to my heart, and it's this. I believe that this book is Christian Scripture. All of it is Christian, Christian Scripture. All of it is my story. From beginning to end. My story doesn't begin in the book of Matthew in the New Testament. I'm not just a New Testament Christian. I am that. But I am also a part of a greater legacy, the Old Testament as well. And that is my story also. So that's how I I pray that I preach God's word. That this is all Christian scripture. That means we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. In the Old Testament, in the middle of the Old Testament. And guess what? It is written for you, dear Christian. It's written for me. It's not written for people only who lived 3,000 years ago. But God has so ordained it to get into my heart and into my soul and chip away at me. And it's the same for you. God has so written it for you this morning. And when I come to it, I come to it because I need to grow. I need to become a better Christian. I need to understand more fully what God has done in this world through his son, Jesus Christ. I need to understand more fully what God is doing. And I need to understand more fully what God will do in the end. I can never escape that. I can never get around that. And so, 
So I'm always thinking, God, work in me. Is that your prayer this morning? God, work in me. It's easy, so easy, to sit there and think of all of the other people that we know who need to hear this message. All of the other people who this might apply to, all of the other people who this might be for. So let me say it very clearly this morning. This word, this message is for you. Don't put it on anyone else. God, through his word, is about to speak to you this morning. Will you, the living, take it to heart? Would you stand with me as we read God's word out of reverence and respect for his holy word? I will read Ecclesiastes 4, beginning in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who, who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Faithful Father, may your word be like food to us that we eat and are satisfied. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Tuberculosis. The Spanish flu. The Black Death, Yellow Fever, Smallpox, Cholera, Malaria, AIDS, Typhus Fever, Polio. 
those are supposed to be the 10 most well-known epidemics that the world has ever experienced. 10 epidemics that have invaded our world and have invaded man and brought great destruction and great death to people. We hear all of those epidemics and we think about them and we think about how many of those really aren't a worry for us anymore in the Western world. With the advance of modern medicine, not many of us have to worry about those epidemics anymore. But there is another epidemic that has been growing. Another epidemic that has been taking a hold of our world. Another epidemic that's particularly been infiltrating Western cultures and the Western world. Many people think that this epidemic is a recent phenomenon. It's new. We've never seen it before. Something different is happening. And even though it might be on a scale that we've never seen before, the problem has always been there. The problem's been there since Adam and Eve. What is this epidemic? An epidemic that's going on all around you. An epidemic that you run into every day. In fact, it's an epidemic that maybe has even invaded your own heart and your own life and you haven't even known it. What is that epidemic? It's what some people have called the loneliness epidemic. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever known that? What it is to be lonely. Interesting, Forbes magazine done an article about the epidemic of loneliness recently, and they talk about surveys that have been given to people in Western cultures. So, for example, in America, it was found that about half of all Americans say that always or sometimes they feel lonely. Half of Americans say that always or sometimes they feel as if no one really knows them. It's not just us. If you go across the pond to Britain, a third of all Britons say that they are lonely. In fact, for Britons ages 65 and older, half of them say that a pet or television is their greatest company in their life. tells me that maybe there's even someone here today where your greatest companion in life isn't even a person. In Japan, under the age of 40, there are half a million people who have, in the last six months, never gone out of their house and never had an interaction with another person. Half a million, 500,000 Japanese under the age of 40 never gone out of their house, never talked with someone face to face. We know it's a problem in our world, don't we? We know that loneliness is a problem that people experience every day. And in fact, we've tried certain things, try to get out of that loneliness, haven't we? With the advance of technology, we've created these social media networks where you can connect with people from all over the globe, the person next door to a person around the world. And our life can become consumed with 
those friends that we create on social media or the, the likes that we get or the people that we follow or the people that follow us. Yet what's interesting is that with all of that advancement for social media and for us connecting with one another via the internet, via our phones, has that solved the problem? Studies show that it hasn't. In fact, some studies show that it's actually made the problem worse. We don't like to be lonely. We don't like to be alone. And it's something that is a burden to us. It eats away at us. We feel the heaviness of loneliness sometimes upon our hearts. And what's amazing is that this loneliness epidemic is particularly infiltrating young people in our culture on a grand scale like we've never seen before. Why is that? Why is this loneliness something that is continuing to be on the rise and for all of our attempts to fix the problem, for all of our attempts to get out of the problem, maybe we've only exacerbated the problem, maybe we've only made the problem worse and what we find is that sinful humans, when we try to fix the problem, find that we can't fix it. Would you be honest with yourself for a moment this morning? Are you lonely? Do you experience loneliness? Does it eat away at you day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? Why does it weigh so much on our souls? and Why does it cause so much pain in our hearts? I think part of the problem that we have to recognize is that we feel lonely because we have isolated ourselves. We've done it to ourselves. In fact, that's part of the message that we hear from the culture today, isn't it? You can get ahead. You can be anything that you want to be. You can do it all on your own. You don't need anybody else to help you. In fact, we fall into the trap of thinking that getting help from someone else or having other people with us is actually a weakness. We think, I need to look out for number one. I need to look out for me. I need to take care of me. No one else is going to do it. And by creating that kind of environment in our culture, we're actually isolating ourselves from one another. This environment of self-focus and self-protection and self-preservation. We believe that isolating ourselves will benefit us, will improve us, will make us more content and bring meaning to our lives. We believe isolation will be for our own gain in life and in this world. But that's completely backward, isn't it? Any belief that isolation will bring freedom to your life, any belief that you will be more satisfied alone, any belief that you will be able to figure out the meaning and the purpose for your life in this world, isolated from everyone else, is a lie. Isolation doesn't free you. Isolation shackles you and beats you over the head with loneliness and with depression. And we know this, we experience this. 
This isn't some foreign thought out there like, oh yeah, there are people out there who are lonely. No, it infiltrates our hearts and our minds. And Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, has been telling us about all of the vain things in this world. All of those things that you think will provide the answer to the meaning of life. It's like Solomon has a big keychain. And on that keychain there are numerous amount of keys. And it's like he's going key by key by key, saying, maybe this key will unlock the door. Maybe this key will unlock the door. Maybe this key will unlock the door. And now he hands us the key of isolation. And he says, here, try this key. How many of those keys has Solomon tried by himself? Solomon said, I've tried to shove this key in the keyhole, but it doesn't fit, and it doesn't work, and it doesn't get me any closer to figuring out life. And Solomon says to us this morning, if you think isolation is the way to go, the way to live your life, that you're really going to get yourself somewhere, let me tell you that that key doesn't work. I've tried it. Yet how often do we say, no, I'm going to try it myself. <laughs> I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to shove it in that keyhole. Life is just as mysterious, and isolation doesn't take the mystery away, but rather it chains you with loneliness as you try to figure out life on your own. And so, are we going to listen to Solomon today? Are we going to listen to what God has to say to us today? Are we going to learn about the vanity of isolation and heed these warnings that he is giving to us? So what is it that Solomon wants us to learn about life and about how we falsely think that isolation is the answer to that problem? Number one, you can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful this morning. But number one, Isolation is a harsh taskmaster. Isolation is a harsh taskmaster. Have you ever gone along in life and every way that you turned seemed to be like a dead end? Like you think, oh, well maybe this will get me where I want to go. Maybe this will help me succeed. Maybe this will help me get ahead. And every way that you turn, everything that you seek to do actually becomes a dead end. That's what Solomon's doing. It's like he's turning all these different directions and everyone is a dead end. And he says that here at the very beginning, doesn't he? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 7. I, again, I saw the vanity under the sun. Again. Again, there's more vanity. I come to it again. I can't escape it. Every which way that I turn, there it is. Vanity, mystery, meaningless, under the sun. And what is it this time? Here it is, this person who has no one else. He has no other. He has no brother. He has no son. And yet there he is all alone in his toil. And he toils all the time, day and night. There's no end to his toil. He throws himself into his work. He gives himself over to it. He becomes what we might call a workaholic. Day and night he toils, and there is a reason why he works so hard. What is it? Why does this person work so hard? His eyes are never satisfied with riches. 
He's seeking to amass wealth. He wants to get rich. His eyes are never satisfied. He wants to gain money. The lust of the eyes controls this person's life. And he never says, it's enough. He never says, I'm content. That's it. I don't need to work anymore. No, he works, and he works, and he works. And look at what it says. So that he never asks. Do you think about that? So that he never, this is a question that Solomon is about to give us, that this person, he never asks it. What does that tell me? That this is a major blind spot in this person's life. You have blind spots in your life? Things that you don't see? How good are you at seeing other people's blind spots? <laughs> but we're never good at seeing our own blind spots, are we? And this man has a major blind spot because he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of so much pleasure? Why am I doing all that I'm doing? It's like if there is someone else that he is working for, that maybe there would be some joy in sharing what he is acquiring. There would be some joy in his work. There would be some satisfaction or contentment to his life that he could actually enjoy the work that God had given him to do. But isolation has made him selfish. selfish. It's made him turn in on himself. It's enslaved him. It has captured him and there is no Mercy, isolation, is a harsh taskmaster. And one of the ways that you see this harshness played out in your life is that isolation makes promises to you. It says things like this, I promise that you will be content. I promise that you will be happy. I promise that you will be Wealthy. I promise that you will have everything that you want in life. I promise you that you will feel fulfilled all by yourself. You don't need anybody else. You're okay just by yourself. Isolate yourself. Throw yourself into your work. And let me tell you, my friends, those never fulfill anything that you want. Those promises are empty promises if you stay in your isolated work. And if you stay in your isolated living, you continue in this unhappy preoccupation with life that will grind down your life, that will grind down your soul to nothing. And instead of having so much to show for your life, you'll have nothing. Do not think for one Second, either that just because you have a son or a brother or a daughter or a sister or a wife, that somehow this truth is lost upon you. How many people have isolated themselves from their own family with their work? How many children would care less about all of the things that they had, care less about whatever advantage that they have in life, 
because of the things that they have. Care less about extravagant vacations. Care less about all the stuff that fills up their room. They would rather have a relationship with their father. They would rather have known their father, been loved by their father, and cared for by their father. They would rather have had a mother who was there when they needed her instead of a mother who prioritized her career at the expense of her own family. And I don't have to convince you about this. Just look at the landscape of America and you will see a desolate wasteland with the breakdown of such families. All of this because isolation that came upon them because they jealously were striving to be first. And does such a jealousy occupy occupy a place in your heart? And will you recognize that it's isolating you? It's creating selfishness rather than selflessness. So that it turns you in on yourself and you're, not, you're so blind that you can't even see what's going on. Isolation is a harsh taskmaster. Number two, isolation is a dangerous way to live. Isolation is a dangerous way to live. At the beginning of the Bible, God created everything and he created everything good. And he looked and he surveyed everything that he had done on the seventh day. He delighted in all of his work and he said, behold, it is very good. But there was one thing there in the garden that was not good. Do you remember what that was? God saw the man that he had made, and he said, Behold, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him that will complement him. It wasn't good that man was alone in the garden. God understands it is a problem, and it's not good for man to be alone. So we understand then why Solomon would go on to say, two are better than one. That's the way that God has made us. God has designed us not to be alone. Being alone is not ideal. We are social creatures We are to interact with one another. We are to be with one another. We are to have companionship and fellowship and friendship. And there's a reason why two people are better than one. What does it say here? For they have a good reward for all of their toil together. There is something to be gained from their lives as they work together, and it's called a good reward. You want to have a good reward in life. Don't think that you're going to get a good reward all by yourself, alone. A good reward does not come by being isolated, by being alone. The good reward comes from people who are together, who are working together. Conversely, we say this, if you are going it alone, you will not have a good reward. You will not reap the benefits if you insist on being alone, if you go through this life by yourself. 
And so how does Solomon drive this point home to us? Two are better than one. Two are better than one. He begins to give us some analogies, doesn't he? And these analogies come from how people would travel in ancient times. So all of these talking about how people are traveling when they would go from one place to another. And I think there's maybe some correlation into us as we travel through life. What's the first one? The first analogy. You could fall into a pit. When you traveled in ancient times, there were ravines along the side of the road. There were pits along the side of the road. And they didn't have street lights. They didn't have flashlights. If you're traveling at night, it's dark and you can't see where you're going. And it's very likely that you could fall into a pit. And I love what Solomon says here. Look at it. It says, for if they fall. Here is this idea that each one is susceptible to fall, falling. He uses it in the plural. If they fall. Either one of these people could fall. But if one falls, there's another one there to pick that person up out of the pit. Bring them back to safety. Bring them back to the path that they are walking upon, that they are traveling upon. Someone will bring you out of the pit if you fall. And then, just to help nail it even more into our minds, Solomon gives us this woe, this warning, this judgment. You know, Jesus gave us woes sometimes in the Gospels like this, Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. That's a woe. Woe to those people. And so what does Solomon say here? Woe to you if you fall into a pit and there's nobody there to lift you out. What a horrible, desperate, awful state that is to be in. You are alone, you, are, you fall into a pit, and there is no one to help you. And you yell out with all of your might until your voice is hoarse, but no one comes to your rescue. Instead of being lifted up out of the pit, you sit there in that pit, and you stay there. Why? Because you've gone in alone. You've isolated yourself. And there you are in the pit and there's nobody to help. Or, Solomon says, it's like traveling on those cold nights. In ancient times, you would travel together because you would sleep along the side of the road. And if you were alone, you would be exposed to the elements all by yourself. And it would be cold. And you would freeze. And so Solomon says, if there are two of you, at least you can lie together. Keep warm together. But who's to keep you warm if you're alone? He drives it again home with this question. What's the answer? What's the answer to that question? How can one keep warm alone? Answer, he can't. He can't keep himself warm. He needs someone else to keep him warm. We're reminded, alone, you are out there freezing as you lie in the open all by yourself. Or, the last traveling analogy in ancient times, there was a threat of robbers. You're traveling along, and robbers could come upon you. And they could rob from you. They could steal from you. 
And so, if a robber comes upon you while you're traveling and you were all alone, the likelihood of him prevailing over you and taking all of your money was quite good. But if you had two and a robber came upon you, then you could withstand him. And I love what Solomon says here. And guess what? Even three is better. Isn't that what he says? Two is good, but three is even better as you're traveling along. And he, had, he draws it to this threefold cord. A threefold cord will not be quickly broken. This is the strength of a rope. It, a rope is not a single solitary cord. It's a bunch of cords that are entwined to get, to get, <coughs> excuse me, together. They can withstand the attacks of the robber even better than two people can. And we understand that there are strength in numbers, but I think it goes beyond that here. I think what Solomon is saying is that not only are there strength in numbers, there's unity in numbers. These people are together. They are for one another. They are united together in a common cause, in a common bond. And how humbling it is to us. Because it tells us, you are nothing but a single solitary strand of thread. What good can you do on your own? What are you able to do by yourself? What advantage uh, is there of isolating yourself? What good reward is that for the life that you have lived all alone? There is no good reward if you isolate yourself, if you make yourself alone, if you cut yourself off from other people. And how quickly and easily you will be broken, dear brother and sister, if you isolate yourself and think that you can do it by yourself. This has huge implications for our lives. So let me speak to a few today. It speaks to marriages. It speaks to marriages that have people in them who are legally bound to one another but whose lives and whose conduct couldn't be further from the truth. On paper, it says that they are married, but they live completely separate lives. And they could still be living separate lives in the same house, sharing the same bed. But they are completely isolated and cut off from one another. They live in close proximity, but their hearts couldn't be farther apart from each other. And to be honest, I don't know how people do that. I don't know how they live that way. My wife is my greatest confidant, the one whom I go to, my dearest friend and companion. There is no one whom I'd rather and spend time with. There's no one who I enjoy more than my wife. And don't tell her this, but she makes me laugh. I can't tell you how many countless of times she's picked me up out of the pit. How many countless times she's come to my defense. And how I mourn over marriages where people go on with their lives as though nothing has changed. They live the same way they did before they were married. They do their own things. They have their own priorities. They have their own sets of friends. 
Some marriages start out in isolation from the very get-go. The husband and wife, they live on their own. Other marriages, it happens over time. They drift apart. They slowly, one step at a time, isolate themselves from one another. If that is your marriage, if that's what you're struggling with this morning, talk to someone. Talk to me. You can't go on this way. You can't go on living like that because godly marriages are not lived in isolation from one another. You can't pretend that everything is okay. You can't pretend that living that way is okay. You can't pretend that that is actually a reflection of the gospel, which is what marriage is. Marriage is to reflect the relationship that Christ has with his church. And Christ and his church cannot live in isolation from each other. I would not be able to live without my Christ, without my groom, without the head whom I follow. And so marriages, don't fool yourselves to think that you're okay if you're apart from one another, if you're isolated from one another. There's no way that you can fool yourself into think that's a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, gospel-reflecting marriage. So you don't have to let it be. These verses not only speak to marriages, but they also speak to the church. We, as Christians, are not meant to live in isolation. We are meant to live in community with one another. That is why God created the church. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for the Christian to be alone. Dear brother and sister, you cannot and must not isolate yourself from the church. And don't be deceived that you can somehow be a lone ranger Christian. It cannot be just you and Jesus. That is not the way that God has designed it. That's not the way that God wants it. We are to be those who come together as one, as Christ's body, as members one of another, who have each been uniquely gifted in such a way to build up the body in love and in unity. Listen to what Galatians says. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you hear those beautiful words? Brother, sister, you are responsible for each other. You are responsible for restoring one another. You are responsible for bearing one another's burdens. And if you're not doing it, guess what? You're not fulfilling the law of Christ. This is what Christ wants us to do. This is what Christ has called us to. It's not an option. It's not a, if you have time for it, if you feel like it. It's saying, no, live together, be together. Join together and be unified with one another in love. We cannot do this if we isolate ourselves from one another. We are called into membership together. We are called members. Paul says we are members of one body. 
We're called to pursue accountability and encouragement together. We're called to fulfill the Great Commission together. And let me tell you this morning, the worst time not to come to church. Here it is. This is the worst time not to come to church. The worst time not to come to church is when you don't feel like it. You ever had those Sunday mornings? I don't feel like going to church today. That's the precise moment that you should go to church. That's the precise time when you need other believers in your life who will look you in the eye, who will say, I love you, I care about you, I'm praying for you. How can I pray for you? How can I help you? What have you thought about the cross this week? What have you thought about Jesus Christ this week? What is he doing in your life? Let me tell you what he's doing in my life. Let me, let me tell you how we can praise him, why we should praise him together. Is that the kind of relationships that we have with one another? So when you on Sunday mornings think that thought, I don't feel like getting out of bed this Sunday, I don't feel like going to church this Sunday, say, that is God working in my heart telling me, now is the time to go. Now is the time to get together. Now is the time to see my brothers and my sisters. Now is the time to worship my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Oftentimes we don't feel like it. We isolate ourselves. We take our way, ourselves away from others. We cut ourselves off from other people. And let me tell you, that doesn't show your strength, does it? It shows your weakness. And if you isolate yourself from Christ's body, the church, it's a dangerous way to live. No, it's not only dangerous, it's deadly. The solitary person will perish. That's the idea that Solomon's getting at here. It's not just dangerous, it's deadly. Your soul is at stake. And could it be so easy that it just means you have to be with other people? God has given you this community as a gift that you might flourish and live. Would you so spurn God, reject his loving and gracious gift of the church, and seek to go it alone? Number three, isolation is a relentless problem in man. Isolation is a relentless problem in man. I'm going to be honest with you this morning. I always try to be honest, but... Verses 13 through 16 in chapter 4 are some of the most difficult verses in Ecclesiastes to understand. There are numerous interpretations, and I wrestled with these various interpretations. And as I wrestled with them, I kept on coming back to one thing. I kept on coming back to what was the context. Solomon has been writing about what I believe is isolation. And so I want to make sure that as we're reading this, that we are understanding the flow of Solomon's thoughts and that they make sense. Some people will say that here in these verses, 13 through 16 of chapter 4, that Solomon switches topics. This is a completely different topic than what he's been talking about. I don't agree with that. 
they would say that this is merely about the vanity of political influence and advancement. I don't think that does justice to the context and to the flow of what Solomon is saying. So I'll show you how I work through this and seek to show you why I read it the way that I read it and pray that my reading is based on the text and what God wants it to say to us. Look at how verse 13 starts. Better. Better. That verse 13 is connected to verse 9 where Solomon starts out a similar way. Two are better than one. And so I think verses 7 and 8, Solomon's giving us this broad idea. And then these two sections where it talks about things that are better are unpacking that thought that he gives in verses 7 and 8. And so he says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. And that's completely contrary to the way we think, isn't it? How do we think? Who's the wise person? The wise person is the old person. The person who's been around for a while. The person who has a lot of prominence, position. Who's the fool? The inexperienced. The youth. They don't know anything. But Solomon flips that all on its head, doesn't he? He said, here was this poor youth, but he was wise. And you had an old king who should have been wise, who should have known what he was doing, but he was a fool. Don't think that just because someone is old, that they're wise. And don't just think that because someone is young, that they're a fool. It's not based upon age. You can be old and you can be very, very foolish. Don't get me wrong. You can be young and be a fool too. But just because you're old doesn't mean that you're any more wise. Just because you have another birthday doesn't mean that you're more wise. But why was the king a fool? Do you see what it says there? Why is this king a fool? who no longer knew how to take advice. He knew it all. He didn't need anybody else to tell him what to do. He didn't need anybody to tell him that he was wrong. He knew how to do it. He knew how to run the kingdom. I don't need any advisors. I don't need anybody whispering in my ear telling me what to do. I know how to do it. And so what is it that that old foolish king had done? He'd isolated himself from everybody else. I don't need anybody else. I can do it on my own. And what does Solomon say? To isolate yourself that way is foolishness. We see the opposite spectrum of life then, don't we? This poor, wise youth. And verse 14 expands upon this youth's life. He went from prison to the throne. He had nothing. He had no position. He had no prominence. He was in prison. He was in confinement. But he went from the prison to the palace. This is a rags to riches story or a rags to the throne story that Solomon is telling us here. What a great story. Here is someone who went from humiliation, the lowest of the low, to glory, the highest of the high in the land. He became king. And in verse 15, we see all of the living who move about under the sun, this large number of people. We see them here, I believe, come to this youth. 
the youth who was to stand in the king's place. And look at that verse 15 there just for a moment. Where it says, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place, if we read that, literally it says, along with that second youth who was to stand in the king's place. Along with that second youth who was to stand in the king's place. And some people see verse 15 as an introduction of a third person in this story. So you have the young wise king, you have the old foolish king, and now they would say in verse 15 that that actually introduces another youth, a second youth, into the story. I would say I think it's still referring to the first youth. He's second in line. So first is the old wise king, the second youth is the second one to come after the first king. So I think it's still referring to one youth in the story. We see that he is being influential. We see that he is being prosperous. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. People are, are swarming around him. They're thronging around him. Many, many people are gathering to him and willingly coming under his rule. Here is this shepherd king who came from nothing, now leading the people, the flock, in community. And unlike the old foolish king who's isolated himself, what has this young, now wise king done? He's brought people together. He's leading the people. He's caring for the people. He is influencing them as king. Isolation wasn't happening in the kingdom, but rather community was happening in the kingdom as he was leading them toward that. But what happens? It doesn't last, does it? There are others who came later who did not rejoice in the king. They did not rejoice in his reign. And so by not rejoicing in the king's rule or in the king's reign, what do the people do? They break up that community. They isolate themselves from the king, and also they isolate the king from the people. In reading this, it's like we had thought the problem of isolation had been conquered. The people are coming together. They're being led by the king. Isolation has been vanquished. Loneliness has been vanquished. But that problem of isolation raises its ugly head again. The isolationist tendency in man is relentless. Its head continues to creep up again and again and again. Sinful man is looking for ways to isolate himself from others and isolate others at the same time. And that's why Solomon says, surely this is a vanity and striving after wind. Surely it doesn't bring any understanding to the meaning or purpose of life. It just tells us that man has always been doing what he has been doing. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve isolated themselves from God after they had sinned. Cain and Abel. Cain struck down his brother and isolated himself. Joseph's brother's sold their brother into slavery. They isolated themselves. And so it is with man. We seek to isolate ourselves. And it made me think of this verse. Proverbs 18.1. If you want to turn there, it might help you. Proverbs 18.1. Drives home the point 
we're seeking to understand. Proverbs 18.1 says this, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Whoever isolates himself, he's not loving other people. He's not looking out for other people. He's not doing anything for anybody else. He seeks his own desire, and he breaks out against all sound judgment. He's not living the way that he's supposed to live. He's not living according to the way that God wants him to live. He's breaking out. He's rebelling against God. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking at this point. It's too risky to live in community with other people. I don't have anyone that I can trust. I've tried that. I've tried having relationships with people, and they don't last. Every one of them has failed me. They're not secure You don't understand, Pastor. I've tried that, and I've gotten burned. If I do this, I will get hurt. I've been hurt before. I don't want to go through that again. I might get my my toes stepped on. I might not get my own way. Let me ask you something. Are those legitimate reasons for isolating yourself? Have you heard people say those things before? Have you said those things before? Are those legitimate reasons to isolate yourself from other people? Because I believe those things that we say don't come from godly wisdom. They come from worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says protect yourself. Don't let yourself get burned again. Isolate yourself from other people. Godly wisdom Godly wisdom will not let us isolate ourselves from other people. God, I know that I might get burned. I know that these relationships will not be secure. I know that I might not get my own way or what I want. I might get my toes stepped on. It might be uncomfortable. It might cause me pain. But I am going to do it because I love you. And you have said, if you love me, you will love others as well. And so I'm going to move towards other people and not isolate myself from them. I'm not going to follow worldly wisdom anymore. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. How can I, how can I say this with such certainty? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Here he is, Jesus, the Son of God. God incarnate, who took on flesh, who dwelt among us. Here he is, Jesus, the humble carpenter who was born in a stable, laid in a manger after his birth, had no status, had no standing, no position. He came preaching, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And people came. They listened to him. They were healed by him, and the dead were raised by him. And they were amazed to the point that Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, and the people shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How quickly things changed, though, didn't they? Jesus came to his own, but his own people 
The people he had come to save, the people that he had come to rescue, they did not receive him. And a few short days later, after Jesus rode into Jerusalem, what were the crowds shouting? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. His own people isolated him. His closest friends and companions, the 12 disciples, deserted and abandoned and even denied him. Everyone had left him and he was alone. And if the isolation from the rest of man wasn't enough, Jesus, as he hung on the cross, bearing our sin in his body on that tree, cried out, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? The face of the Father turned away from his Son as he bore the sin of many. You want to know what isolation is? That is isolation. And the period on the exclamation point is that he died. And he did that. He was isolated so that you would not have to experience that isolation for your own. You would not have to be forsaken by the Father. But you could know fellowship and love and grace and mercy of the Father flood into your life because Jesus Christ bore your sin on that tree. He was isolated for you so you would not have to be isolated from God. And so that you would not have to be isolated from one another. That is the greatness, that is the glory of the gospel. That Christ bore that sin, he took that judgment, that wrath upon himself, which he did not deserve, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he could bring us out of our sinful state and bring us into fellowship and relationship with God, bring us out of darkness into his marvelous light, so that we would be brought into the family of God, united to the same Savior as we are, And the best news is that the Savior, our King, who was isolated and died, did not stay dead. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, where at the right hand he is seated at the, uh, excuse me, where right now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it is this risen and conquering Savior who has made this incredible promise to everyone who has put their faith and trust in him. I will never leave you or forsake you. There's a remedy for the loneliness epidemic, and it's Jesus Christ. He is the vaccination that you need. There's a remedy when you worry about being hurt by others or when... You wrestle with relationships that are insecure or unstable. And the remedy is resting and trusting and believing that Jesus Christ is the one whom you follow. And that even if you suffer, that there is a relationship with him that can never be broken. There's a way out of the dark hole of isolation by looking to the one who was isolated so that you no longer have to be. By living by faith in him that his grace and his mercy and love is so abounding to you and extended to you in your time of need that you cannot stay isolated but you move out to other people. If you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you are plagued by this isolation, or if you are plagued by this loneliness, today is the day 
to say, no more of this. No more of this sinful way of living. No more being separated from God. I want to know Jesus Christ. And he will come into your life. And he will flood your life. And he will change your life. And he will give you the satisfaction that you need so that you can be free from being shackled to loneliness. And give you the glory that comes from knowing him. Then you can sing like we sang this morning. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is truth. So we ask this morning that with this truth that's come to us, that you would sanctify us. You would work in us. Lord, we are at times broken. We are in need and we are at times lonely. But let us lift up our eyes to our Savior, Christ. And let us remember the promises that He gives. That He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And so let us then move out into the lives of other people. Let us be willing to be vulnerable and sacrifice with other people. Also that you might be glorified. Also that we might live the life that you want us to live. Also that the name of Christ might be exalted and lifted up. We pray this this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.